2: LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.
1: This is Jen Taub, inviting you to unwind every Sunday with my new podcast called Booked Up. It's just you, me, and our favorite authors. I'll be talking with them like no one else is in the room. Be honest, who doesn't love to listen in on a private conversation, especially with writers like my first guests, Dahlia Lithwick and Michael Cohen. Plus, on the last Sunday of each month is our Booked Up Book Club, featuring Never Trumper George Conway, Official Preppy Handbook author Lisa Burnbach, publicist Ivan Lett, and advice columnist E. Jean Carroll. Please follow Booked Up with Jen Taub on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And email me at bookedup@politicon.com. Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Jill wine Joyce Vance, and me, Barb McQuaid. Kimberly Atkins' store is away this week, and we can't wait to have her back. Today, we'll be discussing the FTX scandal, hate crimes, and the marriage equality law. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. But I wanted to start by asking both of you a question. I don't know if you saw this piece in the Washington Post, but it talked about how people are using emojis in the workplace, especially with Gen Z, and the communication gap that can arise between people of different generations. And I wanted to ask each of you, you know, number one, do you use emojis? Do you even know do you know what emojis are? <laughs> yes, yeah. of course we do. Right. Do you use them? <laughs> I, I do. use emojis
2: a lot because I, I know this will come as a shock to both of you. I am very often sarcastic in my no. communications. No. And, and I've learned that there's no way to read tone in an email. So I use appropriate emojis to indicate I'm being sarcastic.
1: And I do so it. So what frequently. would be an example? How would you indicate sarcasm? Like if you were to say "nice hair, Barb," how would you like? What would you well, do? Well, if to I include... said
2: "nice hair, Barb," I'd be totally serious, and there'd be no need to use a sarcasm say you were, my emoji. Sis, you're my sister.
1: Channel my sister and say "nice hair, Barb." Yeah, if I, I was your, you, use?
2: you know, I like the black sunglasses face, and there's oh, also the cool. one with the eyes rolling up in their head. So I'll use both of those to oh, signal I that I'm being okay. sarcastic.
1: Yeah, that's a good one. Okay. How about you, Jill? You do you
0: use emojis? I, I use Bitmoji more than I use emojis. And What's Bitmoji, Bitmoji? Oh my gosh. If you don't have it, it's wonderful. You can personalize an avatar that looks like you. Oh, so I you see. Yeah, put, yeah, yeah. Put, it, put in your own hair and you can dress it any way you want, um, you know, in a sporting outfit or very dressed up. And then you can look for things that really make it easy to communicate one thought, one idea, one feeling, uh, or to say happy Hanukkah or Merry Christmas or whatever it happens to be. It's, it's a really fun, easy way to communicate. I don't use that many smiley faces and sad faces, but I do occasionally use something. And my, my system is set up so that if I type certain words, like congratulations, it'll have a bottle of champagne pop up. And I sometimes add that to the message. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's kind of a lot of fun things. It'll suggest suggest, uh, an emoji, right? Exactly. Exactly. And that is sort of, it's just fun, but I could see how in the workplace um, that I would not be amused if I was getting emojis instead of words as a response to a question and that that could be a generational issue. And it's such a good point that I'm going to raise that as a chit chat with uh, Victor on our IGen politics because I bet he thinks it's ok to do <laughs> and may do it. And I'm just wondering about that. So I'm going to check in with him on that,
1: yeah. I, I according to this article, it is in widespread use by Gen Z. You know, I, I use it in my personal texting, like with friends and all of you. But I don't think I would use it in a workplace setting. But I, I think that's changing. And I think Gen Z is absolutely changing it. Are we becoming like a hieroglyphics uh, language culture? Are we losing language as a result? Or is it that you can convey more with emojis? I've been impressed. By my 91-year-old father-in-law has become the master of the emoji. He loves the thumbs up emoji, which the Washington Post article says the young people um, don't love. They think it's lazy and uh, they, they think it's... Um, not expressive enough but I think mm-hmm. it's great you know he uses it and it's a sort of a general you know yes I'll be there uh, affirmative I like the one and I've been using lately the um, smiley face it's like a half smiley face with the salute like if somebody says you know what am I can you pick me up at location X I send him the little salute you know that means uh, I'm on it 10 four um, but they're all uh, they're all interesting okay so lightning round last question then. Um, how about the exclamation point? Same thing. Um, uh, Gen Z are big users of the exclamation point. So there was a time when I would not write any, I thought if including an exclamation point is just lazy writing. If you want to emphasize excitement, write words that are generate excitement. Don't throw in an exclamation point. That's, um, you know, I gave that up in, in middle school, but, uh, according to the Gen Z people, if you just say, thank you, that sounds flat and mean and, uh, An exclamation point suggests enthusiasm in the thank you. And so you should always include it at least one. Some say up to three. How about about you? Do you guys use them? I'm
0: with them on that. And I think it's partly because since we're all learning to write in short sentences for Twitter, um, it's a way to communicate without having to use all those better words that might communicate your enthusiasm is an exclamation point does it in one little mark. So I think, it's, I think it's an okay thing.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. And it may be, look, you know, I mean, you guys know my background, right? I grew up as a Jewish girl in the Valley out in um, Los Angeles. We are very prone to exclamation points, and I've never lost that trait. <laughs> <laughs> huh? All right. Well, I'm going to send each of you a big thumbs up emoji.
1: So what's the on. option
0: instead of a thumbs up that Gen Z likes if they don't like thumbs up?
1: Cause I like Probably thumbs up. a bit, a smiley face, but a really big smile. If you send only like a wan smile, oh. they think that you're like, you know, throwing shade. As I as send the, smile. the smiley face that has
2: three hearts on it to, to oh. say, you know, yeah. that sort of thumbs up thing. Yeah.
1: Well, I got to up my emoji game. Well, let's move on to the news. Um, one of the big stories this week was FTX, this cryptocurrency platform, and Sam Bankman-Fried, its, uh, its leader who was arrested this week in the Bahamas where he awaits extradition. Joyce, can you please give us a little background on FTX and its recent financial problems? And, and by the way, if you can, in a sentence or two, Explain what cryptocurrency actually is. You know, for our listeners, you tell me what it is. Yeah, you tell me.
2: So you'll be really amused um, that to get the answer to this question, how do you explain crypto in a couple of sentences? Um, Because I can do it, but my explanation is long and convoluted because I'm not as conversant with it as I should be in some ways. I turned to my daughter who when she was interning on Capitol Hill, part of her job was to attend a bunch of hearings on crypto several years ago. And I asked her, what's the easiest way to define it in very few words? And this is what she told me. She said, crypto is digital currency that is made and used through encrypted blockchain. And then she told me, but mom, what you really need to do is watch one of those crypto for beginner YouTube videos to get the hang of it. I was sort of insulted by that because I was involved in some crypto cases when she was, uh, I don't want to say still in diapers, but not much older than that. Um, you know, because for, for me and Barb, this might have been your first exposure to crypto as well. It was an alternative currency that was often used by people who were engaged in criminal activity. Mm-hmm. And that was that was how I was first exposed yeah, to dark it. Dark web stuff. Exactly. But the blockchain technology is very interesting, and it involves replicating transactions in a secure way so that they theoretically can't be altered. That's held up pretty well in practice. The interesting thing about this situation, though, is that it's really got very little to do with crypto per se and more to do with a garden variety fraudster FTX was a crypto exchange. It was the third biggest crypto exchange, one of the markets where crypto is traded and where people invest money in in cryptocurrency. and so this was not a scheme that, de- that depended upon the use of cryptocurrency. It, it was more akin to a Ponzi scheme, um, something where the bad guy is using money that people entrust to him, that they invest with him, uh, and then keeps taking in more money to create a semblance of normalcy while he's actually spending the money that earlier people have given him. Of course, that only works until people start wanting their money back and then the whole thing collapses. And that's what happened with FTX. They filed for bankruptcy on November 11th after a surge of customer withdrawals took place earlier in the month. Uh, Bankman Freed had to admit that the company didn't have sufficient assets on hand to meet customer demand. So since it happened in the context of FTX and the crypto market, I think it's important for us to discuss and try to better understand crypto at the same
1: time understanding that this is less about crypto and more about fraud hmm yeah, that's a great explanation, Joyce. Thank you. And Jill, let me ask you about the charges. So the Southern District of New York unsealed an indictment on Tuesday. Can you please tell us about those charges?
0: They are a very broad range of charges and very not well spelled out and specified. They include conspiracy to commit wire fraud, actual wire fraud, conspiracy to commit commodities fraud, conspiracy to commit securities fraud, conspiracy to commit money laundering, which starts to get really sounding exciting, and conspiracy to defraud the Federal Election Commission because there are some election campaign contribution uh, charges uh, as well. And they are very wide-ranging and very vaguely set forth. And they all are part of the misappropriation, as Joyce said. It's really embezzlement of the funds that people entrusted to him rather than that there was something inherently wrong with the concept of cryptocurrency, although I have to say I'm sort of in this older group of people who thinks it is kind of um, almost like the Trump trading cards it's not really a thing it's just sort of you don't have
1: any I thought we were gonna trade
0: (laughs) you you told me they're sold out I mean I can't (laughs) even get one if I wanted one there's a lot of fools in the world buying those but I'll uh, get them for you
2: guys for Christmas
0: (laughs) oh thank you
2: You (laughs) really that would be so wonderful
0: do I get to here's the worst thing you can't even pick the ones you get They just randomly select. Oh, really? You can't choose like the one with the laser eyes. No, you cannot. Ah. You they will send you whatever it is, and that means if you buy a second one, you could get a duplicate of the first one.
1: That's how it is with trading cards. I I saw baseball cards as a child. That's how it goes. Oh
0: my god! Anyway, there were billions of dollars of customer funds deposited with FTX, and um, they sort of disappeared, (laughs) and so people have lost a lot of money. And it looks like um, the uh, SBF, as he is now known, which also sounds a lot like MBS. Um, I don't know why I confused the two of them. One was a killer and the other is just uh, apparently a thief. Um, but anyway, Bankman Freedley, allegedly. allegedly, yes, allegedly. He was arrested on these allegations and uh, extradition is awaiting
1: well, um, Joyce, let's drill down on that a little bit. As Jill said, it's you know a very extensive um, indictment with a lot of different charges in it. it kind of they kind of threw the kitchen sink at him, but I did notice that this is not what we would call a speaking indictment, where the government you know previews some of its best evidence, like you know the Oath Keepers indictment, for example. Is filled with quotations from text messages that provide evidence of the crimes. This one is not like that. It just uses the language of the statute, you know, just kind of parrots that statutory language. Um, but it, it does have a lot of different counts. What do you think is going on there? Any theories about why it's charged the way it is? Well, you
2: know, like I do, that the U.S. attorney here moved incredibly quickly. right? They Wait, the Southern District of
1: New York bigfooting it into a case? The Southern
2: District of New York bigfooted, shoved everybody else out of the way. For those of our listeners who don't have DOJ backgrounds, we should probably explain the Southern District of New York is notorious for sending out a couple of subpoenas and then claiming that they've got jurisdiction over a case, right? There's a little bit of friendly competition among U.S. attorneys. And Barb, I'm sure you had the experience that I had of Uh, once or twice of talking with friends in the Southern District of New York about uh, why they weren't gonna poach on our cases. Um, But here, New York beat everybody else to the jump. It may well have been their case nonetheless. And there may have been some legitimate concern here um, about, for instance, if SBF might've tried to move to another country where it would have been very difficult for the United States to get him back from. So that could be a legitimate reason for moving quickly. But Barb, you shared some speculation with me that I think makes a lot of sense. And you pointed out that because DOJ can't add any additional charges after extradition, that's how the complicated treaty um, options work on extradition. What they did here was they made a lot of different charges. They covered the landscape. And then as the case evolves, they will dismiss the ones that don't apply, but they would not be able to add them after an extradition. And specifically here, there's a lot of uncertainty about what crypto is. It's such a young currency. You know, is it a security? Is it a commodity? Nobody really knows. So you have to charge a lot of different ways.
1: Um, And then, as we used to say in my office, let God sort it out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I think that's super interesting. The security versus commodity issue. Um, you know, a security, I guess I would explain as an instrument that represents, you know, some sort of financial backing, um, you know, like a stock is a security, um, or a commodity, which is you know a, a product like pork bellies or, or orange juice futures or something like that. Those are commodities, and so you know, is it a thing that you like? You you own this cryptocurrency? That this is your stuff, or is it that it is a security and it represents you know some cash value? And um, that will you know d- define which which statute it falls under because a jury has to make a finding about that. So I suppose if you include both. Then um, you're covered if they file a motion to dismiss one of those pre-trial. Yeah. So that'll be super. And of interesting course, to watch. the risk is that it's neither, right? Oh, I mean, well. it's
2: really, it's just going to be a very complicated and oh, utterly fascinating case to watch move forward. It's a currency. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, and there's always fraud, right? Uh, good old bread and butter wire fraud. So I think no matter what it is, yes, yeah, that will be the when path you, when forward, you lie undoubtedly, to, to take their money. Uh, that's a fraud. So doesn't matter what it is. So that's pretty interesting. Um, Jill, let me ask you about SBF himself, Sam Bankman-Fried. He has kind of portrayed himself as, you know, a bro. He lives on the beach. He wears shorts. He, he does. He says he doesn't read books. He has unkempt hair. Uh, is it all just a put on? You know, he he's also been very um, forthcoming doing a lot of interviews trying to, I think, portray himself as kind of like, you know, an innocent but well meaning kid. Oh, live and learn. I, you know, who knew this was so complicated? Um, but I also note that his parents are professors at Stanford Law School and have been involved in his business. So, uh, what do you think? Do you buy it that he's, uh, you know, this bro in over his head, or is he instead a uh, scheming financial sinister criminal? Well, he's also, he's
0: apparently a mathematical genius. He Went to a special math camp when he was young. He's a graduate of MIT. Math camp, is that
1: like debate camp? Did Joyce meet him there? <laughs> <laughs> no, no math at debate camp. Did you have socials <laughs> with the
2: science <laughs> class? Yeah, mix, yeah. Mixers. They had mixers. Mixers. The science yeah, camp mixers. Kids. Right.
0: Um, <laughs> but he is a graduate of MIT. And his appearance really makes me rethink all the criticism that I had of the press coverage of me talking about how I dressed because. How you dress does communicate something about yourself. And he's obviously trying very hard with his uncombed hair, with his baggy shorts, um, to create a certain look. And it's not one that if I were going to invest any amount of money, I would want to put into a company that he had anything to do with because his appearance looks so unprofessional. But... You're right. His parents are both law professors. They must have raised him in a home of books. Um, so I, I think it is pretty much a put on. I don't know what he thinks he's accomplishing by it because I can't imagine that that attracts business. But yet, I think it probably is. And um, I, I, as I say, I don't see the value of it. I think he is something much more than that. And if it's part of a pre planned defense, then it's not going to work either. He knowingly took people's money and kept it and cheated them.
1: Now, what about extradition? Joyce, you know, DOJ is going to seek extradition of Sam Bankman Fried to the Southern District of New York. There he is in the Bahamas. And he, I think he said he's going to fight it. How does extradition work? So the fact that he says he's
2: going to fight it is a little bit of a tip off that he has a sophisticated legal team representing him already. Um, You know, extradition from foreign countries is a matter of treaties. There are different treaties with different countries. With the Bahamas, he'll be able to delay extradition, but it's extremely unlikely that he'll be able to prevent it. He'll be back in the United States, if not in weeks, um, then in months. And it's really not at all unusual, the situation where you arrest someone on a United States indictment in a foreign country. That's entirely possible. Um, And there are restrictions. For instance, some countries will not let you extradite someone if the offense that they're charged with in the United States is death eligible. If it's a capital offense, countries like the United Kingdom won't extradite back unless you relinquish the possibility of a capital prosecution. But that sort of situation um, won't arise here. There might be some delay, but the path forward is pretty straight up.
0: And Barb, can I go back to your, because I I, my COVID brain is making me maybe not be clear. Um, part of the question you just asked about whether SBF was what he seems to be, and I, what I forgot to mention, you mentioned about his parents' involvement in the company, and both are very well-respected um, Stanford law professors. Um, Ms. Freed has retired, I think now. She's not full-time teaching, but um, uh, Mr. Bankman still is. And Mr. Bankman was very much involved in the business. He was often in um, the Bahamas meeting with staff and doing promotional work. Uh, Ms. Freed seems to have been much less involved, but both of them are very involved in getting him legal help, which goes to Joyce's point about the extradition and the fact that he says he's fighting it means that they have good lawyers. There's actually a fellow law professor um, that at Stanford who is working on the defense and they're saying that they're going to put up all their assets to defend their son. So they are definitely involved.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Jill. And we should say Jill is, um, uh, Dealing with COVID at the moment, and we're sorry that you're going through that. Mm-hmm. But you report that you're feeling pretty good, other than your positive COVID test. So we're yeah. glad for that, and we're happy that you're able to join us. Yeah, other than having to, uh, you know, seriously, from my Jill, husband.
2: showing up while you're COVID positive is is high <laughs> sisters-in-law. I know, and I, but I have to isolate from Brisby. I can't let him kiss my oh, face. Oh,
1: oh my god,
2: poor yeah, Brisby. Yeah.
1: Well, we're glad you're able to join us through the magic of. Technology. Well, let me ask um, either of you this question. Joyce, I guess I'll ask you because you raised it first. You say um, the fact that he is fighting extradition shows that he has a sophisticated legal defense. Why is that? I mean, if he's, you know, if if I were charged with a crime and I believed I was innocent of these charges and I wanted to um, defend myself in court, I mean, I'm going to fight extradition, right? I'm going to come back to the United States. I'm going to go to court and I'm going to put on my defense extradition really is fighting, you know, your your very appearance in court. So why,
2: why fight extradition? Right. And it's interesting because it means he's sitting in a Bahamian jail, right, um, for a little bit of extra time. But there is some value um, in delay. Right now, there is a lot of uh, animus, a lot of heightened sentiment about what went on with FTX. And sometimes lawyers believe that with the passage of a little bit of time, they may be able to negotiate a better sort of deal. I mean, I wouldn't want to speculate about what's going on in the defense team's mind. But in many countries, it would be a pointless effort to spend money fighting extradition because it would be so close to an automatic process. Here, there is a little bit of an opportunity to delay, and they're clearly intent upon taking advantage of that for whatever reason.
1: Well, we'll have to wait and see what happens there. It'll be an interesting case to watch. You know, in some ways, it's a traditional fraud case. But in other ways, I think it's about to you know, make some interesting law in this new world of cryptocurrency. So we will follow it and keep our listeners up to date. At a
0: time of what is supposed to be holiday cheer and brotherly love, it's disturbing that we are instead seeing a dramatic surge in hate crimes, often with a link, in my mind, to disinformation and domestic terrorism. We've already discussed the Department of Homeland Security's Domestic Terrorism Advisory Bulletin from November 30th, which warned of potential violence against the LGBTQ plus community, racial and religious minorities, U.S. critical infrastructure, which of course then happened in South Carolina, and much more. And today I want to look at the relationship between domestic terrorism and hate crimes and delve into the facts and causes and solutions for hate crimes. And Joyce, I'm going to start with you as a law professor and ask you to define hate crime and distinguish it from domestic terrorism.
2: So the FBI defines a hate crime as a criminal offense that was motivated in whole or in part by the offender's bias against a person's actual or even just their even just their perceived race, ethnicity, national origin, gender, gender identity, religion, disability, uh, and or sexual orientation. And that the crime was committed against people, property, or society. It's a pretty complex definition that comes down to the motivation behind the crime. Um, and, and the type of crime typically falls within the cases that DOJ's Civil Rights Division would bring, uh, along with the United States Attorney in that jurisdiction, The definition of domestic extremism is very different. The FBI and DHS both use a definition that involves an individual who's based and operating primarily within the United States or its territories, and isn't being directed by a foreign terrorist group, but they're engaging in criminal acts seeking to further political or social goals, uh, wholly or in part through the use of force. It's a hyper-technical definition that's based on the statutory definition of domestic terrorism uh, that's at 18 U.S.C. 2331, and that specifies domestic terrorism as three things. Criminal acts that involve danger to human life— And that appear to be intended to intimidate or coerce a civilian population, to influence the policy of a government by intimidation or coercion, or to affect the conduct of a government by mass destruction, assassination, or kidnapping, and that occur primarily within the territorial jurisdiction of the United States. So you can see where those two sets of crimes might not be mutually exclusive, right? It's possible that you could have a hate crime that would also involve domestic terrorism. But typically, when we talk about hate crimes, we're thinking about civil rights violations, while terrorism cases involve people with some sort of a political motive, people who want to use violence to frighten or intimidate the public or influence the government with the action that it takes.
0: But of course, they can clearly overlap in in many many ways. Um, you could see how someone who is using a political goal that is to keep the races separate, for example, that's clearly based on racial
2: hatred. Yeah, you could absolutely have overlap in this area.
0: Yeah. So we've also we've talked a lot about the rise in anti-Semitism, and also against the kind of hatred of the. LGBTQ plus community, uh, including the recent attacks that we've seen, and there's a really interesting case uh, right now, a criminal case in Michigan, where there was a plea that hasn't gotten as much attention. Tell us about that case, Barb, and uh, why it's so important.
1: Yeah, so uh, a guilty plea was announced this week uh, out of my former office in the Eastern District of Michigan, really proud of my former colleagues there. Um, It involves a man who is uh, uh, entering a guilty plea for crimes he committed in the summer of 2020. And, you know, that was the summer of George Floyd, the summer of the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, think about that time in June and July. And he called nine different... Starbucks stores in Michigan, where they were wearing Black Lives Matter t-shirts, you know, in support of the cause. And he called all of them and um, made racial slurs in each one of these to people who answered the phone. And um, I, I tend not to want to repeat racial slurs because it's uh, they're awful and I don't want to give uh, airtime to the words. But I, I think it's important that we, we we don't minimize what was said in these calls, because I think sometimes when we hear racial slurs, we just move right on uh, without thinking about the words. And so I'm going to give a little trigger warning. Here they come. But I'm going to share them just because I think it's important to know that people are out there saying this, you know, after George Floyd is killed by a police officer. And most of us, I think, we're feeling concern about police brutality and what was happening uh, to black citizens in police custody. This guy calls nine different Starbucks stores and in each one, he calls and says, I want you to tell any employee wearing those Black Lives Matter t-shirts that, quote, the only good N is a dead N. He also told one of them, quote, I'm gonna go out and lynch me a N-word. Um, and it, one of them, um, there was um, uh, in, uh, Uh, a beverage cooler inside a 7-Eleven. There was um, a a note with a noose um, in four other parking lots at Starbucks stores. Inside the cars, they would find nooses with notes that said something like the perfect accessory to go with your Black Lives Matter t-shirt. And so this was a serious crime because It terrorizes a community. It says a particular community is not welcome here. And not only should everybody who shares that characteristic in this case, you know, being African-American, but everybody, all of us, I feel deeply offended that in a community where we welcome people because of their diversity, where we, we tolerate all racial differences, religious differences, it is incredibly offensive to our notions of equality uh, to, to think that somebody is out there saying those things. And so I was very proud of my former office for charging that case uh, because it's important to hold people like that accountable to send the message that society does not tolerate this kind of behavior.
0: It is really a very important case, I think. And um, you mentioned um, about the, of course, the police and the fear that happened because of the uh, George Floyd Uh, killing. And there was um, another indictment today uh, of five police officers for the killing of a black motorist. And uh, there was certainly clear perjury and obstruction, but eventually a video proved that the officers had beat and abused the man they stopped. And I'm wondering whether, you know, going back to this question of how do you tell a hate crime from domestic terrorism or just plain murder? How do we tell, um, you know, in, in, the, in some of these cases, the defendant admits I did it because I was motivated by the religion of the people I attacked or the race of the people I attacked or the gender identity um, of the people I attacked. But in, in a case like this where police stop a black man, once again, he ends up dead. How do we tell whether that's murder? Is it more than that? Is it the kind of thing like Barbara's talking about, Joyce, where society has to say we cannot tolerate this kind of behavior beyond the fact of the murder?
2: You know, this is such a good question. And Jill, do you remember we were discussing this after the murders in Atlanta at the Asian-owned spas, right? Yes. Targets are all Asian Defendants not saying anything, and and it looks like a hate crime, and it sort of, you know, walks like a hate crime, but it's tough to know for sure. It's difficult for prosecutors in these situations. Um, So partially, it's a matter of state law. In the first instance, if you've got a state statute and they come in some different flavors— but if you've got a, a, an available one and you can put together the proof of, of the motive, then you can supplement the murder charge with a hate crime charge, or in some cases it just amplifies the punishment when that statute is there. That's been an issue, though, in cases like Ahmad Arbery's murder, which also happened in Georgia, um, where the state charges and also the way the prosecutors chose to prove their case didn't do anything about identifying the crime as a hate crime. They didn't have a state statute at that point in Georgia. They now have a state hate crimes uh, statute. And prosecutors were nervous, they, they admitted quite candidly, about injecting race into the trial. So you have a conviction in a case that clearly looks to be animated by a racial motive. And the conviction doesn't really vindicate that. In that situation, DOJ can and it has come in behind the state. It did in the murder of Ahmad Arbery. It did in the George Floyd case to use the federal hate crimes statute. Um, and as you pointed out again, Jill, you know it's just a point of how good is your proof of the motive. The federal hate crimes statute is pretty easy to apply if you have that evidence in the case of a, of a homicide. It can be much more difficult to prove, and there can be questions about whether something is a serious enough bodily injury to make that statute a felony conviction. So lots of complicated twists and turns, both with the law and the facts. But the decision about whether hate crime charges are appropriate is largely a matter of whether you have a a statute available and how good your proof of of the racial animus is. So... Let's
0: move to a slightly different question, which is why has the number of hate crimes increased so dramatically? Is it related to Barb's new special topic of disinformation? Is it related to Trump's language? you know there's good people on both sides of the Nazis um, and his meetings with clear members of the white supremacy groups and anti-semitic people and does that just validate the bigotry and does it result in the crimes? I was also interested I, in researching for this topic. I looked at a place that I try to stay away from, which is Fox News, to just see how they're covering it. And of course, they're saying Democrats blame the GOP for fanning the flame of bigotry against LGBTQ people. Um, and I, I don't think I'm blaming them. I, I think that there may be a direct link to the crimes that we're seeing because of the language and enabling people to say these things out loud and then act on them. What do you think,
1: Barb? Yeah, I've actually been researching this uh, very recently for my book on disinformation, and it, it is all part of this same political uh, agenda. And I, I don't want to say it's a Republican agenda. It's It's an agenda of the far right, which is a subset of the Republican Party. You know, there are plenty of Chamber of Commerce Republicans out there who just want to, uh, you know, have their low tax, small government uh, policies and uh, that allow you know small businesses to thrive. That's that's a, a, a legitimate view. But there is a faction, I think, um, of the the far right that is trying to demonize their opponents in an effort to prevail. Um, you know, there's some some research that says you know if I divide the world only into two camps and then I make the other camp appear to be the devil, to be so undesirable, you can't possibly align yourself with that other undesirable side, then you'll have no choice but to be on my side. And so how do I do that? I've got to fan the flames and make you believe that everything the other side is for is evil. And so the LGBT community is all about uh, grooming children for pedophilia. And the Jewish community is all about, uh, you know, controlling the media as global elites. And Asian Americans have brought us uh, in Trump's words, the Kung flu and the China flu. So all of those things give license to other people to engage in hate speech and speech begets action. So, uh, you know, when you demonize another group, you know, most people are not going to take the bait, but there are certainly, there are people out there who are unhinged enough who are going to act. You know, all of these mass shootings we've had in recent years that have targeted groups, Club Q and um, the Tree of Life in Pittsburgh, there was a Walmart shooting in El Paso, Texas. There was a supermarket shooting in Buffalo. You know, all the the common denominator of all of those people was some variation on the great replacement theory. You will not replace us. Uh, You know, white, straight, Christian people are being eliminated by all of these other groups. And so we need to eliminate them first. That is all part of that same narrative. And it is fueling disinformation and it is fueling hate and it in turn is fueling violence. And so I think that we need responsible grown-ups to stand up and say enough um, and denounce the disinformation that is part of this feedback loop.
2: You know, can I s- supplement that though, Jill, and just jump in and say, I-, I agree with everything Barb says. And I think that there's also a more pedestrian force at work here, which is that these crimes seem to be more prevalent because they're being viewed through this lens more frequently and they're being reported more frequently. Whereas 10 or 15 years ago, people would have dismissed it as a homicide and not been very interested in the racial motive um, or in a motive that had to do with religion or anti-LGBTQ bias. Now we're seeing that come to the forefront and it's becoming something that we are better capable of discussing and better capable of seeing the need to provide accountability for. So in some ways, um, the increase in these cases, I don't want to say that it's a positive thing because that's not the case, but I think it signals that we are handling cases more appropriately.
0: So let's take that the next step, which is how do we decrease the number of these from happening? What are our suggestions for reducing these crimes? Is labeling them as hate crimes with the added penalties, is that part of the solution? What's, what is the way to educate the population that there needs to be an acceptance and a tolerance of diversity?
2: I mean, it's twofold, right? Part of it is education, which in a lot of ways is the solution to all crime. Better education, better early education, but also using existing laws. And DOJ, I give Merrick Garland high marks for this. He has done a good job of being unafraid um, to let the Civil Division bring these prosecutions. Um, And if you can create deterrence... By showing people that if they engage in this sort of conduct, there will be a penalty and that it will happen swiftly and that the sentences will be lengthy, then you can also begin to build deterrence. That may not change people's bad attitudes, but it will keep them from committing homicides.
1: Yeah, I think criminal prosecution is one way to send a message that this is not acceptable. Um, And I know the FBI and DOJ are um, taking a more active role in this. You know, one thing that I I noted in the materials DOJ put out recently, and and Joyce, I don't know how this was handled in your district, but one of the things the department has done is elevated uh, hate crimes and civil rights violations to a a level one priority in every district in the country. So there is this process that the FBI does where they call threat banding, where in every area of responsibility, together with the US attorney, They develop what the priorities are going to be of their district. And, you know, certainly you can't investigate everything. And so the FBI together with the U.S. attorney will identify the priorities, uh, recognizing that they're going to be different in different parts of the country. The number one priority for the department across the country in the past 20 years has been terrorism and national security. And then in each community, you can identify what else is going to be an, a, a category one priority. So, you know, for example, in the Eastern District of Michigan, when I was there, it was violent crime, public corruption, because those were significant threats here. I imagine in other parts of the country, there were different things, you know, opioids in certain parts of the country, for example. But I, um, uh, civil rights was always a very low priority, even during the Obama years, and as a result, uh, the FBI in Detroit dedicated about one agent to it. And, you know, they were as diligent as they could be, but it was only one agent. And it was often the newest person on uh, at the, the division, at the field office. And so they weren't, uh, you know, just as skilled in developing a case. And then they would uh, get some experience and quickly move on to a different squad. So it was kind of all the new, always the newbie and only one. And so as a result, they just couldn't be terribly productive. But Merrick Garland has made uh, civil rights and hate crimes a top tier priority in every FBI field office in the country. And so I think that is likely to bring with it additional resources, more experienced agents, uh, and as a result, more cases. Because I don't think that the cases are on the low end just because they're not out there. I think they're on the low end because they have not devoted significant resources to investigating them. And so I think investigating those cases and bringing offenders to justice and telling people about it is a way to denormalize hate crimes.
2: And so, you know, the inside baseball part of that is that when that threat banding process is done, that establishes the priorities that will um, be used when the special agent in charge of that FBI office is evaluated in the end of the year. And FBI folks are good at working to their priorities. You can bet that the SAC uh, who wants to do well will make sure that she or he is doing a good job with their top banded priorities. And so as Barb says, civil rights was often relegated to the third category, if even that. um, Barb's and my former colleague, um, Todd Jones, who was the U.S. Attorney in Minnesota before he became the head of ATF, was fond of saying all business is personal And that applied very heavily for me in the area of civil rights, where I would just often um, use whatever resources I had at at my um, disposal to convince my FBI special agent in charge that it was worth investing the resources in our district into civil rights cases because the work mattered, even though he wasn't going to get the kind of credit for that that he would get, for instance, for working public corruption or foreign or domestic terrorism cases. And I was blessed with um, a really great SAC in, in this regard. But the point that Barb is making about using criminal cases to deter hate crimes is an important one. DOJ also has civil side authority in the area of civil rights. And those cases can do a lot to create societal change in attitudes. So, for instance, in my district this week, they've announced the settlement of a big civil rights housing case where Black people were being excluded systematically um, in a certain jurisdiction from fully participating in the housing market. And, of course, that's the sort of long-term societal change that we need to see if we're going to do better in this area. To Barb's point about resources, that case was done by a, a woman that I hired in AUSA that I was uh, able to hire when I was given a spot that was designated for civil rights. Some of those were pushed out to U.S. Attorney's office offices nationwide during the Obama administration. And so this woman has continued to, to work to, to do what's in her portfolio. And I think that's how we change the mentality that permits hate crimes by making hate and racial motives unacceptable society-wide.
0: I, I hope you're right. I have long believed, unfortunately, that you cannot change people's minds by legislating. You can prevent behavior, you can arrest them, you can punish them, and maybe that sends a message to other people that it's not acceptable. But I think do think we have to go back to some educational component and to stopping the disinformation that has become so rampant and that is infecting the minds of so many people. Because really, you're not changing people's minds by legislating against it. You can pass all the civil rights legislation you want, but it's not going to make people decent people until... There are consequences.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. I think you can't change attitudes with legislation. And that's why the civil side, civil rights work is right. so important, right? Yeah. When communities are more diverse, when education is inclusive, I, I think that's exactly what you're talking about, winning over people's hearts and minds. Exactly. Exactly. So this week, President Biden signed a law into effect that has been controversial. It's the Respect for Marriage Act, and it provides some protection for same-sex and interracial marriage. Barb, we've discussed this a little bit previously, but can you set the table and help us understand what the law does and what the criticism that it doesn't go far enough is about?
1: Yeah, you know, this this was uh, actually a very refreshing piece of legislation, I thought. Uh, the Respect for Marriage Act, you know, it's been so difficult to get anything through Congress, but it protects um, same-sex couples' marriages, and it also protects the right um, for interracial marriages. So, you know, in light of, uh, I, I think, if it had not been for the Dobbs case, I don't know that anyone would have thought this legislation was necessary. Because remember, we had um, the Obergefell case that said federal uh, law has to recognize same-sex marriage. There had been the Windsor case a few years earlier that recognized um, state and states um, the right to marry. And so it seemed like uh, there's no need for it, right? Because uh, same-sex marriages were approved. But the Dobbs case came along and I think really, Uh, cut out the foundation for all of these cases that are built on this idea of substantive due process, which is the idea that there are some rights that are so fundamental that even though they are not specified in the constitution, they still exist because the ninth amendment says things like rights not enumerated are retained by the people. And so what are those rights And the court has held, well, well, there's this whole whole penumbra of privacy rights, and among those are things like the right to contraception, the right to um, same-sex sex, sex, uh, and then same-sex marriage. Uh, But with Dobbs, especially Clarence Thomas's uh, concurring opinion that says, I think uh, all that... Substantive due process is garbage. I think we should uh, get rid of it all. Uh, There was this need, I think, um, to um, legislate and say, um, no, we as a member of Congress say that this is the law. So that is now um, on the books. So, Jill, given the criticism that's
2: been lodged against this bill Is there a a good case for it? I mean, Barb is refreshed. I'm sort of excited to see Congress doing anything on a bipartisan basis. But on the actual issues here, is this purely symbolic or does it carry any real protection for these marriages along the lines that Barb outlined? So it does.
0: And and let me say, that is not to diminish how important anything bipartisan is these days. I grew up in an era where that was de rigueur. And I really am one who would like to see it return a lot. But yeah, I mean, first of all, it repeals DOMA and the Defense of Marriage Act from 96, which was really awful and has in part been set aside by uh, the Supreme Court, but wasn't completely abolished. And so it now makes clear that in the case of Thomas's Warning coming true in the case that the, the court does overturn Obergefell. Although Barb and I are saying it differently, but um,
2: I say Obergefell. How
0: do y'all oh, say it? Oh, three different ways. Yeah, it's three different. Well, I, I you know on iGen, we had uh, Jim Obergefell, and that's oh, how yeah. he how does says he say his it? name. I guess he would know. I think Ober- he says Ober. Obergefell. No, he said Obergefell, or but that's my hearing. It's confusing. I'm bad on on accents. So, and we we all know who we're talking about. That's what we'll go. Yeah, that's that's what I'm saying. But um, you know, it does not give um, a requirement that states allow a marriage license. You know, there's no mandatory thing here, Uh, and it doesn't limit anything that the states may do that are anti-gay. Anti-trans, they they for example things that are you can't get your uh, birth certificate changed to reflect the gender of your choice in some states. So it's it's not a perfect act, but it does provide the protection that now exists under the Supreme Court decisions. In the case that someone, for example, uh, lives in a state that turns against this, should the case be overturned, their state, if they were married in a state that still recognizes and allows same-sex marriage, their, would, their marriage would have to be recognized in their home state. And the federal government would have to keep recognizing it. And that means that things like Social Security benefits would have to be given to a same-sex partner. Um, you would be able to sponsor a spouse for citizenship, which you might not otherwise be able to do. Um, You would have to get equitable treatment for your marriage. It would have to be as recognized as a marriage between a man and a woman. And there'd be the full faith and credit required from every state. So as long as you get married and have a marriage that is valid in the states that are wise enough to do that. uh, And I could see a mass migration from some of these states. Uh, as a result of states taking these bad actions. But yes, I think it's more than symbolic. I think it does provide some protection in the event that the existing protection from the Supreme Court is taken away. In the same way that would a um, a law have been good to have had in place to protect Roe, if Roe had been put into uh, a statute, would there be more protection for women's rights if that were the case. So I think it's a good thing.
2: Yeah, so that makes sense. And it, it raises this question. It's sort of the why now question, Barb. The Supreme Court decides, now I'm going to feel self-conscious about how I say it, but the Supreme Court decides Obergefell in June of 2015 um, requiring all states to recognize same-sex marriage. So, so why in this moment are we having concerns? What prompted it?
1: Well, I think it's because of Dobbs, right? Uh, if if we're concerned about the bottom being uh, knocked out of all these substantive due process rights, then that one's next. And so I think to uh, protect against those kinds of worries. I suppose the other thing that's going on is we are still seeing uh, attacks against the LGBTQ community. We just had the Club Q attack. And so, you know, anything we can do to legitimize the LGBTQ community, including the sanctity of marriages, I think is something that can help be one of those things that helps build resilience. I also think that it is, you know, part of the LGBTQ community is still um, not on equal footing with the rest of us uh, in terms of rights. There is something called the Equality Act that's been proposed in Congress. That's an anti-discrimination act based on sexual orientation that is not on the books. And And so when you have these cases like the one that's pending out of Colorado involving uh, the website designer that can say, um, I'm going to refuse to uh, the business of a couple uh, in a same-sex marriage uh, as as part of my First Amendment rights. I think if you can codify these things and show that the the anti-discrimination laws are narrowly tailored to achieve a compelling governmental interest, then you can't, you know, trump it with your First Amendment right. Uh, And so I think... That's part of what is motivating um, this statute at this moment.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I remember reading for the first time the opinion in the Dobbs case and getting to Clarence Thomas's uh, concurring opinion and thinking, really, really? You know, they've just taken away women's reproductive rights. And now he wants to go after same-sex marriage, something that was fought for so hard um, and that protects so many people. But if you read his opinion, the analysis that he uses should put you in fear that that Obergefell and marriage equality is next on the chopping block. But, Jill, part of this law also involves interracial marriage. Uh, a Supreme Court case called Loving versus Virginia made interracial marriage legal in 1967— That was how late in our history that happened. Uh, It's largely based on a 14th Amendment equal protection rationale. That's different than the rationale that undergirded Dobbs, uh, that undergirded Roe versus Wade, that undergirds Obergefell still. There's some suggestion that interracial marriage, Loving versus Virginia, is less vulnerable to being reversed by the Supreme Court because of that Fourteenth Amendment rationale, even after Dobbs, do you agree, or do you think we should be worried about this too? Well, given the conduct
0: of the Supreme Court, I worry about everything now. <laughs> I, I mean, I would have never thought that I would live to see Roe overturned, and I certainly wouldn't think I would live to see Loving overturned, but. It is possible. It happened with Roe, and so it could happen. On the other hand, you've pointed out the real distinction, which is, and, and I'll point out a different distinction, the, the first distinction being that loving is based on the 14th Amendment, not substantive due process. But also, um, in the threat issued in the concurring opinion by Thomas, it included same-sex sex, same-sex marriage, and the right for married couples to have contraception. It did not mention interracial marriage, something that Justice Thomas is in himself. And by the way, one of the pens awarded for the signing of the Marriage Equality Act went to the vice president, who is also in an interracial marriage. And so I think that both politically, socially, and legally, loving is in much less threat. Um, No problem having it included, better safe than sorry, but I think it's much less in danger than um, same-sex marriages.
2: You know, it's really crazy when you back up a little bit, you know, when you zoom out and think about what's really going on here, something like two-thirds of Americans support same-sex marriage now. And except in like really cringy corners of right-wing social media, there's really no one, right? Who says that interracial marriage, that there's any reason that that shouldn't be allowed. Um, But this court has been laser beam focused on a very conservative social agenda. You know, it's always interesting to me, you see Justice Roberts go out and play a little bit with the progressive wing, but once you get back to these core conservative agenda issues like abortion and like voting rights, Roberts is right back in there with the conservative wing of the court. So do you think that Dobbs was one and done, that abortion was really the big goal here? I mean, it is so hard to think just from a global perspective that we're going to see an end to access to contraception. But when you think about the legal rationale that was used in Dobbs, that is the logical outcome, right? Do you think we're really going to go there or will the Supreme Court pump the brakes? Barb, what do you think?
1: I don't know, but this court has not only, you know, decided cases coming across its desk, it, it it has been very proactive in choosing which cases it's going to decide. And even in cases where the courts below kind of followed the status quo, you know, they've taken cases up. And so to me, they have signaled a desire to be very proactive in um reforming the law. They are not, you know, I know (laughs) Chief Justice Roberts was fond of saying, you know, oh, we're just umpires. We call balls and strikes, which sort of, you know, Mm -hmm. presumes that we're just there. The players are, you know, initiating the activity and we just say what it is. And, And that's just not the case. You know, this is all part of a conservative legal movement led by the Federalist Society and other advocates who are involved in impact litigation. You can start a lawsuit at any time by, you know, all it takes is uh, one one clerk anywhere in America to deny a marriage license um, or, you know, I- I- any of these kinds of things to create a case or controversy and bring it up through the courts. And, um, you know, and then once it's there, you know, or, uh, you know, paying for contraception, um, there are all kinds of ways to get these cases up before the court. And this court seems very eager to, to shape the agenda. So I don't know if they care so much about some of these other issues, but um, they have not shied away from them before.
0: And and it's also true that there have been cases, as you note, that have been sort of brought to the court by uh, deliberate attempts. So the web designer case, 303 Creative, is one that was, its it hasn't happened. She has never designed a website she's just saying, if I'm asked to, I don't want to have to do it. And that's so speculative. That's not the kind of case that would normally be taken by the court. And and Joyce, you said, you know, except in the most cringy corners of the right wing. And I don't think it's cringy corners, because that sounds like it's a teeny little thing. And, and, and Barb, the same thing. I mean, you referred to it except for, you know, this Republican Party that is uh, gone to the far right wing. The far right wing has absorbed what used to be the GOP. And so I think there's good reason for serious concern about all of these things, because I think that it's not just a fringe element of the party, that the people who believe, as you refer to, Barbara, you know, small government, socially, maybe more liberal, but fiscally very conservative, that's a very small part of what's left in the party. It's certainly not the ruling part of the party. So I think we have to be worried about all of these things.
1: this is the part of the show that is our absolute favorite where we answer listener questions. We really get so many great questions. We're really grateful and we spend a fair amount of time sort of uh, sifting through which are our favorites, which ones we're going to answer. And we're sorry we can't get to all of them. But if you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw@politicon.com, or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week where we'll answer as many of your questions as we can. All right, Jill, got one with your name on it here. It comes from Judy in Oregon, and she asks, "What is the status of the Equal Rights Amendment? Did this House switch kill it?" I'm seventy-six years old, and I want to see it part of the Constitution before I leave this mortal coil. What, <laughs> uh, can you give can you give Judy any hope? I there can, in
0: <laughs> I I I can because I have the same goal. I want to see it pass, and I think with the uh, marriage equality act passing, I, I go okay. W- and the equality act pending, um, why not the equal rights amendment? Why are women not officially part of the constitution? And so, but to her question is what's the status, not whether it should be. She obviously thinks it should be, I think it should be, I bet you two think it should be. And so it really has already met the requirements of the Constitution to become the twenty-eighth amendment. The Trump administration, when all of the states got to the point where we had enough ratifications, could have just told the archives to publish it, and that would have made it part of the official constitution, but Trump didn't. I thought for sure that the Biden administration would and that they would withdraw a Trump era Office of Legal Counsel opinion that said that there was a timeline that had been officially put in place and couldn't be overcome. I don't believe that timeline is an official part of the amendment that has been ratified. And I don't think any states can withdraw their ratification and that the late ratifications count just as much as the early ones. So I think that all it would take is for President Biden to say to the archives, publish this as part of the Constitution, and then it would be part of the Constitution. We do have this little hurdle of the uh, legal opinion from DOJ that needs to be overcome. But if the president said, let's reevaluate that, and they looked at it afresh, I think they would conclude that there is no hurdle that prevents this from becoming officially the 28th Amendment. We shouldn't have to start the process all over again. Enough states have ratified it. It should be the law.
1: All right. Well, there's some hope for you, Judy, in Oregon. Our next question comes to us from Donna. Joyce, I'm going to direct this one your way. And Donna asks, if Donald Trump is indicted by multiple jurisdictions... What order would the cases be tried? Do the jurisdictions coordinate?
2: You know, this is a very interesting question. Um, The former president has become so popular with prosecutors that there's really the risk that there could be multiple jurisdictions um, all trying to get a piece of him simultaneously. And the question in that situation is, what do you do? Who goes first? Um, A little bit more complicated here because there's the possibility that there could be some state Uh, prosecutors involved. Certainly Fulton County could possibly indict the former president um, on a similar timeline to DOJ. Uh, There is a speedy trial act that comes into play here. Prosecutors have only a certain amount of time from the time of an indictment to take a defendant to trial, but a judge can can order that there be a continuance to the Speedy Trial Act time and a defendant can agree to it. But if, for instance, we were to see a very early federal indictment and a much later state or additional federal one, we would probably see that first indicted case move forward first. But not infrequently, especially when you have federal and state indictments that involve the same set of facts. This happened with Ahmad Arbery down in Georgia. You actually have an agreement among the prosecutors about who's going to go first. And that can be based on, you know, it, it can have considerations involving evidence. You might want to let the strongest case go first in some settings. And um, other times, perhaps the federal prosecutors strong arm their state colleagues just a little bit to get to go first.
1: All right. And our final question comes from Courtly, who asks, could you explain a bit about how the system makes the determination of sentence severity and why there's an apparent difference in magnitude between white collar and blue collar crimes involving similar amounts? This is um, an interesting question. The sentence in the first instance is set by the legislature. So in states, the state legislature will say, you know, the maximum penalty for um, Uh, assault is, you know, 20 years or the maximum penalty for first degree murder is life. So that number gets set by uh, the legislature. Same on the federal level. Congress sets a statutory maximum in every for every crime. Bank fraud is 30 years. Some drug crimes are life and those get set by statute. Um, But then in sentencing, there are also sentencing guidelines which are not mandatory if they are mandatory, a jury has to find them. Most uh, jurisdictions have advisory guidelines that just give a judge a ballpark uh, based on data from other cases about where a sentence should come down. And even the guidelines are really not that different between um, white collar and drug cases. I mean, maybe drug cases are are higher. but, the dollar value is what drives white collar crime, and so when there is a very high dollar white collar crime, the guidelines are quite high. It's why Bernie Madoff faced, you know, more than a hundred years in prison. Um, we had some cases in my former district against public officials where the sentencing sentence guidelines were 360 months to life. That's 30 years to life. Sentences came in at you know 21 and 28 years in some of those cases, which were below the guidelines, but really quite high. Um, and I think, but so often courtly, your observation is correct that white-collar defendants instead get things like 18 months, six months, probation, home confinement, and other kinds of things. And I think it's because their defense attorneys make very persuasive arguments about why they are not a danger to the community. But I think, personally, that completely misses another very important component of sentencing, which is deterrence. It isn't just about protecting the public. It is about making people think twice before they engage in that kind of behavior in the future. If all you get is a slap on the wrist, then it was worth the risk, right? Because sometimes you might get away with it. And so I think that one of the things that goes on is judges who are, you know, wealthy, highly educated, successful people look out at the defendant and say, wow, that person reminds me of my fill in the blank son, daughter, self. Um, and they don't see them as a criminal the way they might, who is someone who is less educated, perhaps a member of a minority group and is uh, you know, on uh, selling drugs on the street to live, whereas this defendant is stealing people's money out of greed. If you were to ask me which is more egregious, I would say the white collar crime, which is based on greed and not on need. I'm going on a little rant here. Um, and so I think, the Bias of Judges is the answer to your question, Courtley. Um, There's a great book on this by Jennifer Taub, our friend called Big Dirty Money, who talks about these incredible disparities and how people game the system when they have a lot of resources. So that'd be a great topic for another uh, another episode. Um, but until then, uh, I wanna thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Jill Weinbanks. Joyce Vance, and me, Barb McQuaid. We're missing Kim, but we hope she'll be back next week. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. Go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our shirts, hoodies, and other goodies just in time for the holidays. And please support this week's sponsors, Moink, Honey, Upside, Calm, and HelloFresh. You can find their links in the show notes and please support them because they really help make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow Hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and please give us a five-star review. It really helps others to find the show. See you next week with another episode, Hashtag Sisters in Law.
2: I had asked my agent if I could um, write a Lifetime movie, and she was like, no, you can't do that. It's not your brand. And I was like, come on, I really want to write a Lifetime movie. It's like my career goal. <laughs> and she was just like, no. So I don't know what oh, yeah, she'll think about recipes. Joyce.
1: Come on, I you, think I'd be great at writing be great. lifetime it, movies. You know, it's all about like the big city girl goes to small town Alabama, and she takes up knit- knitting. She opens a knitting shop, and she learns the joy. She meets a nice guy. Come on, it's your, absolutely, life. I your life.
2: Absolutely,
1: your life is a lifetime. Movie. Write the
2: lifetime movie, autobiography. Uh, no, perfect. my autobiography wouldn't be a Lifetime yeah, movie. Yeah, it's like
1: those, those, uh, those, those, those Lifetime holiday mm. movies. And then there'd
2: be all the years that the boy she married was super annoying and she had to yell at him for being a slob. I don't oh. think that's Lifetime movie yeah, material. Yeah,
1: that part doesn't make it into the final cut. You know, they, just, <laughs> they meet and live
2: happily ever after. There we go. With chickens.